But yeah, I'm truly vehemently anti-flossing. But not in terms of dental flossing. Yes. Floss every day, for sure. Dance how you want to, not like you are told to do by Katy Perry's minion. Boom. Long episode title. What's up, nerds? It's basketball. Welcome to Horse, a basketball podcast about everything except for the wins and losses. My name is Mike Schubert, and I am joined by my trusted co-host, the being the best part of the Malice in the Palace doc to Steven Jackson. It's Adam Amawala. Adam, how's it going? It's going well. I'm really glad I watched that last night. And uh, let's just tease it right off the top. Pretty sure there's going to be a forthcoming episode about Malice at the Palace. Yes, there have been many people asking us to do an episode about Malice in the Palace, much like there were many people asking us to do a Space Jam episode. And we certainly will do one about Malice in the Palace, but we want to do that one right and probably devote an entire episode just to discussing it because it is a very complex situation and the documentary was very good and we want to try to get some fans involved. So we're going to put some work into that. It will be forthcoming. Adam and I have both watched it. It's very good. I would recommend it to all of you if you have Netflix. It is called Untold malice at the palace i would highly recommend it it is very good it finally gives the players perspective on that situation which when the event happened it was just white people in the media yelling at the players and condemning them and not telling their side of the story so we finally get their side of the story it's very good and we'll do a whole episode on it soon it's kind of ironic that you said our plan was to get some fans involved because that's kind of the whole thing yeah i mean we we want to get the perspective of people who supported the teams as well i think this was a nice documentary it was revolutionary in that it actually told the story of the players so i think for our episode to get the perspective of the fans would be nice but yeah a lot of people have asked even more Multiple people while I was doing live shows with Potterless last week were asking me, have you seen the documentary? Granted, I did do a show in Michigan, so it makes sense. That's true. But <laughs> people were asking, so I think the desire is there. We'll do that soon. Absolutely. But before we get into the NBA stuff and the WNBA stuff that we will be covering on this episode, we have to get ready, prepare ourselves, and we do that in an area, in a room that we like to call the Teal Memorial Locker Room. Teal's well. That's always good to hear. Always great to hear. You know what is also great to hear slash read in our inbox? Uh, I'll tell you what's great to read in our inbox. You have a new patron. Yes. They put a little celebration party emoji in the email and everything, and that is well-deserved because we don't just have a new patron. We don't just have new patrons. We have a whole bunch of new patrons, which is fantastic. So shout out to Rebecca Thilo, Darian Smart, Timo Ellers for returning to support us on Patreon, Liz and T. Havoc. And also a huge shout out to our newest producer level patron, Elliot Peters, a.k.a. Basketball is Life 2. Did we have a Basketball is Life 1? <laughs> I'm not sure, but Elliot did mention uh, that they are both a Bulls and Knicks fan, which doesn't seem possible to me. But wow. perhaps that is where the two comes from. I'm interested to see at what point in time Elliot became a fan, because maybe it was back when both of the teams were good, or Elliot potentially hates themselves and became a fan <laughs> of both of the teams when they were bad, or Elliot just really likes us and supports both of our teams, which is also a valid approach. Shout out to all the horse listeners that just want the best for our teams so that you and I are happy. That always warms our hearts. It's hard to say. The The message from Elliot said, couldn't decide on slogan, bulls Knicks fan bulls to the core, maybe basketball is life too. Ah, okay. So it seems Elliot leans bulls, which I'm very happy about. Yes, we'll say leans bulls as opposed to Elliot leans you over me, because that would make <laughs> me feel sad. <laughs> also possible. But thank you, Elliot, for supporting. And of course, thank you to our existing producer level patrons, Polly Burridge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwick, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Siobhan Ellsbury, Shoo-Bee-Doo-Bee-Doo, Godzilla Got Busy, Steph Curry for three. Bang! He sells seashells, LeBron James, Matt Barger, NBA legend Robert Zachary, No Jazz, No Pizza, Eileen Gazesh, Avatar Kiyoshi, Don't Go Chasing Taco Fall, Anna Borgeli, Mitch Kreisler, bang, bang, brown men can jump, Jimmy Butler for two, long-suffering Timberwolves fan, roast beef debris, Christ Paul, Cade the Conqueror, and basketball is life too. When did we get Cade the Conqueror? Did I miss that? Cade the Conqueror is Matthew Hillebrand choosing a name. Wow. Matthew is a big Pistons fan, so I have no doubt that Matthew will be excited about the Malice at the Palace episode. But Cade the Conqueror is a nod to number one overall draft pick, Cade Cunningham, who I think will be quite good. I think he will too. Is he already coming into the league with that nickname? Is that his established nickname? If not, it should be. 
It should be. We need more NBA nicknames that aren't just combinations of initials and numbers, because those are exceedingly boring. And Cade the Conqueror is fun, and I would support it wholeheartedly. Speaking of uh, nicknames that are very much just uh, abbreviations and letters, I saw my dad over the weekend, and he was wearing a shirt that said The Baddest, and then on the sleeve it said KD, and I was like, where did you get a Kevin Durant shirt? And then my cousin was like, he was wearing a LeBron shirt yesterday. So shout out Maksud Mamawala. I think he's been to a Nike outlet recently. Wow. I can't tell. Amazing. Also very interesting that Kevin Durant would have a shirt that says the baddest on it. It reminds me of when KD had the original merchandise campaign for KD is not nice back when Kevin Durant was very nice and wasn't yelling at strangers on Twitter, which is always very fun. But I remember that was like an intentional thing because he was the guy who would show up to press conferences with backpacks and then he had to make a whole tough campaign about how, oh, I'm actually not nice. I'm grumpy. We should have seen it coming. Yeah, KD was backpack kid before the Katy Perry performance. Right. The original Backpack Kid. Yeah. I bet Kevin Durant can floss with the best of them. He's got some long arms. Yeah. Backpack Kid, I guess, stole not only that dance and pretended that they invented it, but also stole the backpack thing from Kevin Durant. Look at that guy. Unbelievable. Backpack Kid sucks. That guy sucks so much. I'm more of a left shark guy. (laughs) Backpack Kid tried to patent that dance, which has been around long before he's been born. I know someone who's been doing that since childhood. You can't do that. I can't just patent some dance that everyone does. Absurd. We're an anti-Backpack Kid podcast here at Horrors. It's true. I can't say this with any certainty, but I have a weird feeling that you are really good at flossing. Oh, I intentionally did not learn to floss because I would make a TED talk about this, but I feel like flossing is the antithesis of dance because dance is all about self-expression, but flossing is just you are tasked with, oh, this is a situation in which I should dance rather than do what feels right to me and how I want to express myself. I will do the one cookie cutter stencil thing that I am told to do. And I think it was actively bad for children that that was what happened. (laughs) And I think it's kind of phased out. But yeah, I'm truly vehemently anti-flossing. But also... In the Teal Memorial Locker Room, we want to talk about people supporting the show that are our sponsors. And our sponsor for this episode is Shaker and Spoon. If you are trying to make some fancy drinks, but you're not trying to pay a bunch of money at cocktail bars for them, Shaker and Spoon is here for you. They send you a box with all of the ingredients and the instructions to make four servings of three different types of drinks that all use the same liquor. All you got to do is provide the bottle of booze and they do everything else. And it's educational. It's fun. It's delicious. It's cost effective. What's not to love? Look at all those positives. That's a lot of positives right there. Yeah, it's good stuff. So if you want to try that out, you can visit shakerandspoon.com slash horse hoops and you will get $20 off your first box. The boxes usually run between $40 and $50. So that's like half off, which is pretty good by my math. So go to shakerandspoon.com slash horse hoops and get a delivery box and make some fancy drinks for you, your friends, your family, your dog. I don't know. Today. Yeah. No alcohol for your dog, but you know. (laughs) I don't have any pets. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe make your make a make a virgin drink for your dog. Really concise messaging on this episode so far. We're doing we're doing really great. And finally, we want to thank Multitude for having us as a part of the collective. And we want to tell you all about the multi-crew, which is the way that you can get access to Head Heart Gut, which is our multi-crew member exclusive podcast where you can hear all of your favorite multitudes, Adam and I included, arguing about various things. Recently, I was on an episode arguing for the best cereal, and I argued why it was Lucky Charms. Adam, what was the most recent Head Heart Gut you were on? I believe the most recent one was me defending oranges as the best fruit. Ooh, that is a very good fruit. I'm a big orange fan. I'm a big fan of oranges. I also uh, defended The Dark Knight as the best sequel in film history. That is a very good choice. Very, very solid choice. So if you want to hear a bunch of nerds arguing far too intensely, but still friendly about very silly subjects, go to multicrew.club and get signed up and you can listen today. And now with that complete, we can get into full court press. Get it? Like the news? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the news... I've got prepared here. I have two fun stories and one interesting, not necessarily fun, but hooray for the people story. What order do you want these in? Uh, I'm tempted to start hooray for the people. Okay. Hooray for the people. Nerlens Noel of my beloved New York Knicks is suing Rich Paul and Clutch Sports for messing up his contract stuff. Nerlens is claiming that Rich Paul is responsible for $58 million in lost earnings. And I am excited about it because I don't like Rich Paul. Tell us more. (laughs) 
So for anyone unaware, Rich Paul is a basketball agent, most famously for LeBron James, and he is the head agent of Clutch Sports, Clutch spelled with a K, because of course. And the boyfriend of LeBron James, right? I mean, the boyfriend of LeBron James, excuse me. (laughs) And that would be news. And the boyfriend of Adele, am I right? Yes. I At least the last time I Googled Rich Paul's dating Adele, question mark, the answer was yes. I'm not sure as of now. But they also represent Anthony Davis and some other folks. But Clutch Sports is an interesting agency in that players are not supposed to have influence over agencies and stuff. And LeBron James does not have any official ties to Clutch Sports, except for the fact that Rich Paul represents LeBron. But there's a lot of convenient things where LeBron's teammates end up getting signed by Clutch Sports or people signed by Clutch Sports turn into LeBron James's teammates. So Hmm. it feels like one of those tampering things that we know is happening, but we can't legally do anything about it. But Rich Paul just... I I respect what he has done and the power that he's risen to. All of the stories I've heard about him are that he is not the best person. And this story backs that up. And I appreciate Nerlens for standing up for himself and pointing out bad things that have happened. So any other thoughts before we get into this specific story? No, I will be interested to see how that plays out. From what you have read, does it seem like Nerlens has a good case here? Potentially. So this comes from Sports Agent Blog on Twitter. They wrote a whole post about this, and we'll put a link to all of the information on this on our website for the episode page of horsehoops.com. But basically, Nerlens Noel got drafted into the NBA in 2013, and he was represented by a different agent. But in 2017, Nerlens Noel was at some sort of dinner event with Rich Paul. And Rich Paul was telling Nerlens he was about to be up for his first non-rookie contract. He told Nerlens, if you leave your current agent and come work with me, I will get you a lot of money. So Nerlens said, that sounds very good. So he decided to do that. Now, he did this on the advice from Rich Paul that he could get him a $100 million contract. And very famously, Nerlens Noel was offered a four-year, $70 million contract from the Dallas Mavericks. Right. This contract, I remember when it came out, it felt like a little bit of an underpay because Nerlens Noel put up Solid numbers with the Sixers, not earth shattering, but he was a top five overall pick. He had a lot of potential and four years, 70 felt good. Maybe he could have got a little bit more. So when he turned it down, it was one of those, okay, he's betting on himself and this doesn't seem like it's going to be terrible situations. So what he did, and you can do this in basketball, is you can take a qualifying offer instead after your rookie contract and you get just a one year, very small deal by comparison. So he took a one year, $4 million deal with the Mavericks instead. And then that next year, if you play really well, then you can be in line for an even bigger contract. So this very rarely happens, but sometimes you get big bet on yourself moments in the NBA like this. But unfortunately, in that season, during that one-year contract year, Nerlens Noel tore a ligament in his thumb. He had to get surgery and he missed 42 games that season. Now here is where Nerlens's case comes into play. The one-year qualifying thing, not necessarily Rich Paul's fault, but Nerlens was believing that beyond this, he could get a big contract thanks to Rich Paul's help. But apparently Noel said that once he got injured, Rich Paul just lost interest in Nerlens Noel as a client. So on the next year in 2018, no one from Clutch Sports or Rich Paul sent any true proposals to Nerlens Noel in terms of his contract or his strategy or what teams he could work with. It just felt like during that whole season, because Nerlens was hurt, Rich Paul wasn't really trying to secure him any sort of negotiations with any teams. So he went into 2018 NBA free agency and had no deals available. And as we recapped in our recent episode with free agency, usually all the deals are done within the first day. So the whole first day goes by. Nerlens has absolutely nothing to go off of, which is not great. So Nerlens went on to sign a two-year, $3.7 million league minimum contract with the Oklahoma City Thunder that season. And he says he's claiming that Rich Paul had absolutely nothing to do with that signing. So he didn't even negotiate it. I don't know if Noel like called on his own or something, but he said that Rich Paul didn't do anything there and Paul was paid a 2% commission on this deal. So pretty good chunk of change for doing nothing. I like that. That's great. Yeah, I would agree. 
So Rich Paul is being criticized for this and then also beyond the season, not trying to deal it. And here's where it gets even more interesting. So Noel had this two-year deal and had a player option, meaning that he has the choice whether to stay under this contract or decline it and try to get a bigger one. He played pretty well that first year for the Thunder, so he declined that second year and he went back onto free agency. But again, he received no offers from any teams and he basically ended up signing that same kind of deal, same price point, just for one year to go back to the Thunder. And this was very surprising because Nerland's played pretty well. I remember when this happened, people were like, how? He just canceled this deal and then took it. So this doesn't make any sense. And the Thunder were very pleasantly surprised to get him back for so cheap. They had basically thought, there's no way we're getting this dude back. But then they did. It's kind of weird that nobody would have given him an offer. So here's the thing. Noel learned from Brett Brown, who was coaching the Sixers at the time, that the Sixers front office had been trying to contact Rich Paul to discuss a potential deal and that Paul refused to respond. And this was also the case with other team representatives who were reaching out to him as well. So Noel should have gotten more money, but Rich Paul was so uninterested in him that he wasn't talking with other teams who actively wanted to pay Nerland's Noel money. And Rich Paul gets a commission of that. So I don't understand what is going on here. So Noel contemplated terminating his representation with Clutch Sports, but he was persuaded by someone at the company to stay with them because they were working on a three-year deal with the Thunder that would get him between seven to $10 million. So he ended up staying with them. That deal never happened, and he later learned the representatives from the Rockets and the Clippers wanted to discuss signing him with Rich Paul, but Rich Paul didn't respond to this as well. So then he signed his one-year, $5 million deal with the Knicks, which is very nice. We just re-signed him to a good deal. But in December of 2020, after signing this deal with the Knicks, Nerland said, okay, this is absurd. So he terminated his contract with Clutch Sports. And he has put forth in this suit that Paul, quote, has a history of mismanaging and ignoring other clients and costing them significant money. He believes that Paul and Clutch Sports were only focused on serving their marquee clients and did not have the capacity to serve Noel as players such as Norris Cole, Shabazz Muhammad, minor players by comparison. So basically, Noel wants to get this $58 million back because he said, if I would have just stayed with my original agent, I would have signed that four-year $70 million deal. I would not have left on this promise for being a $100 million man. Rich Paul's to blame here. He didn't take care of me. I'm suing him for lost money. And that's where we're at. Yeah, that whole situation is tricky. I can see where Nerlens is coming from, but in terms of an actual legal case to be made, unless there's anything in writing from Rich Paul, which I would doubt there would be because usually agents are too smart to do that. Um, I think it might just be on Noel for taking that risk and then somebody really not coming through on like a good faith agreement. Like that's a lot of what happens in these situations. Right. I don't know that he necessarily has the full $58 million leg to stand on. And maybe they're just doing that because it's your classic thing of ask higher and then negotiate lower. I do feel like if they are able to prove and if this really does become a court case and they can get these other teams to prove, hey, we did try to offer you this much money and Rich Ball didn't reply to our email or phone call or whatever, then I think he has a case for those contracts. I would agree with you. I don't think he can get that 470 versus 4100 thing, but I feel like for the other stuff, he might have a leg to stand on. And the best part of this story is, do you want to know what sparked this? No, what sparked it? So apparently when Nerlens Noel signed this one year, $5 million deal with the Knicks, it was again, one of those things. I don't know if Clutch Sports arranged this one or if this was like his other ones where he apparently did it on his own, but the commission of that is supposed to go to Clutch Sports. So Clutch Sports was supposed to get a $200,000 commission. The way it works is players have to actually pay out the commission to the agents and Nerlens just never did that because he was very upset at Clutch Sports. So apparently in recent months, Clutch Sports sent the equivalent of like an invoice to Nerlens Noel saying, hey, you didn't give us $200,000. So that was the final straw where he said, okay, fuck you. I'm suing you for $58 million, wow. which I think is great. Like if this is what costs them however much they either settle for or if he wins the case, whatever happens, I think it would be very funny if by trying to get $200,000, which by comparison of what this company is bringing in is nothing. If that is what brings them down for multiple millions of dollars, oh, it'd be so good. It'd be so satisfying. <laughs> That would be very satisfying. So the moral of the story is don't trust a company who changes their C to a K. No. You just can't. You can't trust them. Can't trust a company that intentionally misspells something. You can't do it. You can't do that at all. Okay, so that was the 
hooray for the people, interesting, whatever. We've got two very fun stories here that are just silly and goof-em-ups. J.R. Smith is apparently going back to college. He's 35 years old, but he is enrolling at North Carolina A&T State University to pursue a degree in liberal studies, but also he is checking with the NCAA on his eligibility because I don't think he ever went to college. I think he came straight out of high school. He's seeing if he can join their golf team. I love this. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I I don't see what... Like, I've seen people criticizing him for this and i don't really see why good for him for going to get his education Mm -hmm. and if he's good enough at golf and never went to college i know he was a professional nba player but i have no idea what the ncaa rules are but i i don't know i guess the one downside would be that if he would be taking away a scholarship from someone who could really use it who would be on the golf team i guess i could understand that standpoint but like other than that i think it's kind of awesome yeah i don't know what the golf program is like at north carolina a and t state which is a lot of things that come after a name. I don't even know how big the school is, but I feel like this would be great for everyone involved. It's good for the sport of golf because it's mostly dominated by stuffy, rich white dudes. Mm -hmm. So to have someone that is more diverse than your standard audience is nice. It's going to put some eyes on a small college. It's going to put an eye on their program. I'm sure they could get extra funding or something. Like, at the very least, Nike or someone is going to hook them up with fresh shoes or like... Yeah, fresh shoes or no shirts or, you know, whatever. (laughs) Whatever happens. I think it's very cool. I love J.R. Smith going back to college. I think that is absolutely awesome. And I think anyone not enjoying this, that's a huge red flag. What is the downside? The one kid from North Carolina A&T State? (laughs) I totally agree. At the very least, you know we're going to have an opportunity for the LeBron meme anytime he misses an easy putt. (laughs) Oh, photoshopped on a green. That would be very, very good. That would be fantastic. I think it's great. I agree. Like he could maybe be taking away a spot from someone, but like, I feel like on that team, not everyone is going to be on a scholarship. They might have some walk-ons and look, if I was going to be a walk-on player on this golf team and it was like, Hey, you can either be the last spot on this team or you can, you know, not play and just be teammates with J.R. Smith. I'm taking that. Are you kidding me? That's huge. Oh, completely. (laughs) And to your point, like this is a complete stereotype, but the likelihood that J.R. Smith is taking away a golf scholarship from someone who really needs a golf scholarship. Like golf is largely a sport played by people who come from money. It's not always the case, Mm -hmm. but it is largely the case. So I think I think we're probably fine here. Yeah. So I think this is great. I love it. Go J.R. Smith. I hope you make the team. I would love to watch you play golf. And finally, it's been Far too long since we've talked about Clay Thompson because he's been injured for the past two seasons. And there have been some stories surfacing recently of Clay Thompson that I found on a Reddit thread and they're fantastic. It was past teammates talking about him. And there's two stories in particular that I think are great and will be a fun way to wrap up full court press here. So the first of which comes from his former Golden State Warriors teammate, Jarrett Jack. I'm just going to say Jack's entire quote because it's a well-told story. Shout out to Jarrett Jack. Quote, we're in Atlanta and we wanted to hang out at a nightclub. We're all there texting Clay and he's like, where are you guys at? I'm like, yo, we're over here. He's like, cool. I'm about to meet you guys. So Clay comes, but when he walks in, he walks in by himself. I'm like, yo, man, how did you get here? He's like, yeah, man, I was hanging out at this bar and some people asked me where I was going and they said they were going to the same place. So shit, I just hopped in the cab and split a cab with them. I'm like, what people? He's like, that couple over there. And it was two married middle-aged white people. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what? Even if you're a multimillionaire, it doesn't hurt to split a cab. Mm -hmm. Another story, which I think we've talked about on the podcast, but... In this thread, it also mentions that during Clay's first contract negotiation, he left partway through because he had to feed his dog, which I know is just a he loves his dog move, but also would be an incredible power play. (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) Just really setting the tone. Finally, there was a story from his teammate Festus Azili, who says, quote, One game, I think we were up three with about 15 seconds left, and somebody threw the ball to Clay. At this point, you just hold the ball, right? Which, Festus is correct. Under normal circumstances, you just want to wait and let the clock run out or let them foul you, whatever. Strategically, you should just hold it. But Festus continues. As soon as it touches his hands, Clay shoots it. I can't remember if he made it or not, but I remember his conversation with Draymond afterwards. Draymond was like, yo, what were you doing? Why would you shoot that? And Clay said, dog, they pay me to shoot the ball. (laughs) He's not wrong. 
He's not wrong. <laughs> he is not wrong at all. And I want to finally give a shout out to someone on Reddit who has a great comment here. Their username is good underscore news everyone. And he says, quote, they don't call it holding guard. <laughs> that's great. Because <laughs> he plays shooting guard. So that's Clay Thompson. I miss him. I'm so excited for Clay Thompson next year. I need him in my life and his chocolate milk dog loving self. I know the most we've got to see him is in Space Jam A New Legacy. And that is disappointing on many levels. Very disappointing. Very, very disappointing disappointing so that concludes full court press get it like the news i do and now we can move on to a very special interview for the rest of this episode yes so i reached out to a friend of mine who i went to college with who is a very successful journalist and author uh we sat down we talked to him he has had an incredible career uh, as a crime reporter for the los angeles times He's also written a novel, has another coming out, and a third on the way, as we found out during the interview. I think you folks will really dig it. Uh, and without further ado, here is that interview. All right. So as we have mentioned, we have a very special guest on the podcast today. Uh, I went to college with this man. He's a very talented author, writer, journalist. Uh, his name is James Queeley. I've already done this intro wrong because I hate when people say the name before they give the credits. I've hated this my entire comedy then career. Then redo it. And redo I've already, it. No, no, no. I'm, I'm committing to it. We're keeping <laughs> this in the episode. This is how it's going to be. Uh, but in addition to being a fellow College of New Jersey alum like myself, uh, James has been a crime reporter for the Los Angeles Times for uh, quite some time now. He's also an accomplished author. He has uh, one novel that's out, another that is coming out shortly. We'll let him tell you all about that. But without further ado, James Queeley. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. I didn't mean that you bungled the intro, but you know, besides that. I did bungle the intro. You know, that's always, uh, every time when I used to do college gigs, they would be like, all right, your comedian is Adam Mamawala. And then people would just kind of be like, we don't know who that is. And then they would read the bio <laughs> and then people would be like, we're still not impressed by this person we haven't heard of. I mean, honestly, I assume you and I are both uh, longtime VIP members of the Everyone Butchers Our Names Club. So you didn't do that. And I've never, I don't think I've gotten yours wrong in, holy shit, I've known you like 15 years now. Yeah, well, mine is phonetic. People just get scared when they see all the A's. I, what is the common mispronunciation of your name? Quelly or something? I get a lot of Quali. I get a lot of Quelly and a lot of, um, I think Microsoft Word just started to become a big deal when you're in grade school. So the kids uh, got queer a lot as a spell check on my name uh, in fourth uh, grade. And that uh, that was common. Yeah, people were not as nice about that back in the day. I think hopefully no. that, that has changed. Hopefully that will have changed for future Queelys if you have any little Queelys running around at some point. Yeah, Brooklyn Catholic schools in the 90s, not particularly woke. Not a not high on the list. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I, I do have to mention, it's, it, it almost seems kismet because this is a podcast called Horse, and the first line of your bio on your website uh, says, James Queeley is a journalist, author, and general arbiter of fact from horseshit. So I feel like that is a good, a good place to start. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about your, your interest in basketball. You're a big Knicks fan, but I'm curious to know how you got started in the journalism world because it is an incredibly intense, competitive, difficult world to break into. And my memory of meeting you is that you and I were in the same intro to journalism course at the College of New Jersey as freshmen. Does that sound right to you? We were. Um, and actually, it's still basketball's fault, even though you're trying to get away <laughs> from the topic of the podcast. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn and I was obsessed with like the Daily News back pages. Like I just really wanted to be the Knicks reporter, not realizing that would be uh, an exercise in self-flagellation for my whole life. <laughs> but uh you know, was really into that concept. And then it just, I just ended up never really writing about, uh, sports. I was, yeah, you know, like you said, we met in college. I was the entertainment editor, um, which is, I believe how we met. Cause I did that profile of you. You want to contest the rat, right? That was the first. Yeah. There, there was a first round at the, uh, it was the rat Skeller, which is like this little pub on campus. Um, and then I ended up winning like this statewide competition. And yeah, you wrote the, I think it's, it was like, you know, King of campus comedy or something like that. <laughs> the so. phrase you won that contest with the rat. I thought you were, in some sort of farm-based, you grew the biggest rat at the county fair. Yeah, I was in the uh, 4A farming competition. Um, and, and James, you know, you got to start somewhere as a journalist. He was he was covering the, uh, the competition. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a much better origin story than we have. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, I was a campus editor, interned a bunch, um, kind of accidentally ended up writing about crime. Uh, somebody broke into a sorority house on campus while we were there. I don't know if you remember this. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, you know, writing sports, writing entertainment stuff, had never really done the hard stuff, and I didn't know cops legally had to tell you things, basically. Right. So I call up because I heard a, I heard a rumor from another fraternity guy, like, yeah, the bloods broke into the ZTA house. I'm like, that's stupid. That didn't happen. And I call up like the UN cops. She's like, hey, I heard this dumb rumor. They're like, nope, here's all the reports. Yeah, no, they broke in. They tied somebody up. I was like, holy 
what? So like, I'm going to write like a law and order episode now and people are going to pay me. And that was that I've gotten a little more serious about the crime reporting since then, you know, criminal justice, kind of a controversial topic all the time, forever, for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but yeah, to start out, no, I was just uh, an idiot who wanted to write about the Knicks and do music reviews and profile middling comedians. <laughs> hey, come on now. <laughs> I, you, 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 did you bring me on here to be nice? You, you, <laughs> you knew better than that. But. Yeah, I should. I, you're you're like a, a more a more likable Michael Rappaport. You just exude New York energy, and we Oof. just have to put up with it. Oh, ooh! I hope the I, Mora needs to be doing a lot of heavy lifting because that man is incredibly unlikable. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess I did expect to get roasted a little bit. That's fair. I'll, I'll take middling comedian. It could be worse than that. Now, out of college, what is the trajectory for you to get to where you're at now? Um, like, how how long have you been with the LA Times, and what were the kind of like first jobs leading up to that? Uh, I came to the Times seven years ago. My first job was the Star Ledger in Newark. Uh, I volunteered for the night crime shift because I needed health insurance. So I was mostly uh, rolling on murder scenes in the south part of Newark or a fire or an explosion or insert terrible thing happening somewhere in northern or central Jersey for about two years. Nobody else wanted to do it. Uh, actually, I was a summer intern after we graduated and the other kids I'm not even kidding. He came in and told me his parents didn't want him working the night shift. So I volunteered for it. And that kind of, I guess, like it's the combination of me being not bad at it and no one else wanting to do the like, you know, schlop work. I'm sure this is that you had some terrible opening gig somewhere. This is comparable oh, to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that. Um, I enjoyed it, but it was, you know, kind of depressing as hell. Um, I got bounced up to cover the Newark Police Department from there. A friend of mine had moved out here two years earlier. Something opened up out here they thought I would like. So I took a shot, had never been to California or LA before, but I don't know how often the LA Times rings your phone as a journalist. So I took the shot and uh, now I'm not coming back. I am uh, still a Knicks <laughs> fan. I'm not, not betraying colors, not, uh, not doing the transplant thing out here and put on a Clippers hat, which is pretty much everyone else from the East Coast <laughs> except me. But uh, yeah, otherwise, I think I'm a permanent West Coaster now. But you've kept your grit, I can tell. But that you mean I'm just permanently grouchy? Then yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear the Knicks fandom, how that all began as a very biased Knicks party here. Was it just because you grew up in New York? Did, were there any other ties? What was it like, et cetera? Uh, grew up in New York. My mom has been in love with Dave DeBusher since before <laughs> she married my father and uh, never stops talking about that. So, uh, yeah, sports was was like upside down from, I guess, the traditional trope in my house. I love my father to death. And despite him being like a big, burly cop, um, if you put a football or a basketball in his hands, he will basically have a seizure. <laughs> so the sports all came from mom. She was just a huge hoop fan. Um, NBA on NBC was on in the background every Sunday if she was making pasta. So it was, you know, some combination of Marv's voice and round ball rock was pretty much like my nursery rhyme probably as a kid. Um, so, yeah, I grew up on the, the 90s Ewing teams. Um, her and my uncle were both enormous. NBA fans and I just kind of got addicted from there. Uh, never really dropped out or relinquished. You know, I've gone, I'm also a Mets fan. Uh, so I've gone through, I have misery on two fronts. Uh, that oh. I tend to drop in and out of. Uh, I don't think I love baseball as much as I did as a kid. And the Mets are just infuriating points to standings currently. But yeah, the <laughs> Knicks are just the, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a family burden. It's, it's handed down through the generations of Quillies and Farrakh days, but it's, uh, it's here we are. Yeah, that happened to me as well. My dad was a huge Knicks fan and it was bestowed upon me. And that was very cool when I was young, because when I was eight, you know, they were in the NBA finals. And then, uh oh, <laughs> when was the first time you got your heart broken by the New York Knicks? It's got to be the Ewing finger roll. I think that's correct. Uh, I, cause I don't think I was old enough to realize the uh, eight points in nine seconds thing. I think that happened when I was like seven. Uh, but yeah, the Ewing finger roll that that hurt because that was the Ewing finger roll, and it was the the, the Rockets finals though. Because I I remember watching that finals with my mom. Mm -hmm. I remember I'm, everybody tells this story, but I was six and very confused as to why there was a white Bronco on my television instead of basketball. Yeah, we just did an episode <laughs> about that actually. Yeah, yeah. So I was I, I I definitely remember crying in my parents' apartment of just like what's happening, uh, <laughs> and then Starks ruined my life, and I never used him in NBA Jam again for Game Seven <laughs> when he missed you know 742 shots in the first quarter. So yeah, that that and the finger roll. It was also because I, I I hated Rick Smith and I don't know why. You know, like I hated Reggie Miller. You legally are required to hate Reggie Miller, but oh, I yeah. also yes. had some sort of deep, completely inexplicable uh, hatred towards Smith. So of course, him being involved in that play uh, didn't leave my head. 
Uh, also weird one though, bronze medal, uh, when they lost the 99 finals to the Spurs, my aforementioned, uh, sports ass backwards father. Again, dad, if you hear this, love you, but you're going to get dumped on a lot here. When they lost that Spurs series in five, turns to me and just goes, they didn't try. It's garbage team. They had no evidence. Like, You've never watched a basketball game in your life. <laughs> my team just lost the finals and I'm like moping around the kitchen and you're shit talking them. Like you can't name one person on either of these teams. <laughs> so yeah, that's the triumvirate of misery that I can think of as a youth. Well, in uh, let's let's go with a happier angle of that. Do you have a favorite basketball memory and or a favorite uh, basketball item that you own? Uh, the other finger roll. I guess I don't know if we're calling that a finger roll, but the the, the sixty four bounce dribbler. Um, yes, yes. Um, after the heart attack of we probably turned that ball over eight seconds before that in game five. Um, that was uh, my mom and my uncle in an apartment in Staten Island. Uh, my family are not small people. Like I walk around about two twenty five, and I'm like the tiny one. So that shot goes down and you had to have a mass of humanity all in one unison leap. And I thought the floor was going to collapse. Neighbors were threatening to call the police. It was like that kind of loud. But it's like you would think that's like a bar in Manhattan or that's a memory we'd have when we're older. But no, it's me, 13, and my mom and my uncle after church, like losing their minds about Alan Houston. So, yeah, that, that 99 run was a double edged sword before my dad pissed all over it later. But um, that first that, that first round one was nice. And we swept the Hawks. We could beat the Hawks back then before now. Hey, but at least this year we made it to the point where we could be sad about losing in the playoffs. That That's true. a huge step up. I got a lot of enjoyment before I learned to wish death on Trey Young. Um, <laughs> He's just the new Reggie Miller where we've decided we all have to hate he him. He is kind of, yeah. He's also a lot more fun to watch. Like, I don't know if you guys have had the Miller-Allen debate, but I'm generally on the Miller couldn't get himself open, couldn't play defense, is slightly overrated. Train, um, Trey, I think, I mean, yeah, Trey can't play defense either, but, you know, he at least springs himself. Um, that floater is terrifying. It, I still freeze and pick up games now anytime i see somebody like in that like beat the guard because i'm usually playing under the basket and get stuck in that halfway between spot i'm like here it goes like i can actually yeah. see the, the the hair start to grow out of their head as they come at me they just become trey in front of me i think i have psychological problems related to basketball <laughs> i think we all do i think reggie miller's got a little bit of the kobe in him where i think he gets a little overrated because he has a lot of clutch moments but if you look at his statistics he's actually not as as good as some of the hype the most infuriating thing about reggie miller though is that i just watched the malice in the palace documentary and he's incredibly likable in that documentary which was a big blow for me because i hated him as a player i currently hate him as a broadcaster i think he's one of the worst but he was very good in that doc and i felt very conflicted did internally well it sounds like he finally got his kodak moment i guess he did <laughs> i gotta watch that i still haven't watched it um i actively boo him as a commentator like even, in, oh, even in, in public i do this in bars and people yell at me <laughs> and i don't care it's just the right approach if you explain your knicks fan everyone will understand true before we recorded, you mentioned that you were an incredible screensetter in pickup basketball. Do you have any sort of wild stories from pickup basketball or just in general how it goes for you, the the type of player you are on a pickup court? Uh, I, yeah, I'm generally, I'm going to give you the prototypical YMCA white guy explanation. I'm generally a really good defender and rebounder. Um, I have developed a jump shot somehow during COVID. I don't know. I got weirdly Ooh. into fitness and nobody was playing. So I, but I have a court in my neighborhood. So I was pretty much just working out and then just going and trying to develop a mid range jumper because outside of 10 feet, my shooting percentage was probably five. Mid range jumper. So you're, you're modeling your game after Rick Smith's is what it sounds like. Can we give me the long twos? Can we just give me D Wade? Like I can't, I have no, I have no handles whatsoever. But the like, ill advised <laughs> long two. Rarely seen in the modern NBA. <laughs> the Andrew Wiggins approach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely had a few times where people always want to fight me because they get like their clock cleaned on a screen. And it is very rare that it's late or it's moving. I mean, I guess everyone says that in pickup, but I'm, I'm usually there and their, their teammates don't call it out. There's a group I regularly run with on Sundays and it's kind of a known thing that I'm more so hunting for screens than to get open on offense. So people do tend to at least warn them, like, you're going to hit a wall of angry New Yorker, so call it out. But, um, yeah, in random pickup games, I've definitely had people get, like, bodied and get up looking to fight, but usually kind of realize, like, listen, I was just standing there. Um, not to mention, they should be fighting with their teammates for not calling out a screen. Right. I, just, should I should I inform you? You're missing a press release ahead of time? Like, I'm going <laughs> to truck you, and someone's going to hit a jumper, and you're going to be mad at everyone with all the wrong people. Uh, no, the craziest or weirdest thing I've seen in a pickup run here lately. Um, I was not involved in this, thank God, but I watched this happen. I was in a pickup run 
And I had like the tall, maybe played D1 guy who won't play under the basket for some reason on my team. Oh, classic, classic trademark. So he was good, but he, he, he was, he actually was going underneath a little bit. And then he stopped because somebody else on our team started screaming at him over the way he played. And he was getting, this is a guy I routinely see. I've heard you guys talk on previous episodes about like the people with like the smoke a cigarette between games, but still can hustle superpower. <laughs> right. This guy would be, this guy would be all, all world on that team. Like he always plays in jeans. He's 50. <laughs> There's a SIG minimum one between games. Um, and he plays pretty good defense. Like it's definitely punch you in the rib old guy defense, but still like I'm going to take it. But anyway, that guy, he's also crazy though. Like babbling insanity, can't follow the story, whatever's coming out of his mouth. So we lose and it's mostly due to argument between crazy smoker old guy and um, D1 guy who won't play underneath. And the guy in the jeans like shoves him and so screaming, he's like, you're going to get me killed. And I was like, we lost like 13 to 11 at like one o'clock on a Sunday. What? How serious were these stakes? He made a side bet with like the random dudes that play handball there. And didn't tell any of us we were involved in this. Oh, God. And I guess he didn't have the money. So, like, he's th- trying to fight our guy while, I like, guess, waiting to get taken out by, like, the, the handball guys. And it's like, this is North Hollywood. This is not like white men can't jump side bet territory. Like, I don't know where, I don't know, I don't know how this resolved. Like, nobody actually got in a fight, but I was Well, I just, guess now it gives you some context as to why he was so upset. But that is, uh, it's very interesting to be a part of a bet that you were unaware of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I shot at least two threes in that game and I am terrible from long range. So, like, if I knew, you know, you, you gotta <laughs> tell me these things. Like, <laughs> I can't even process putting money on any sort of pickup game where I don't know every single person on my team. I would like I was once playing pickup and there was a guy who just partway through he wasn't defending his guy. And I was like, are you defending that guy? And he said, yeah, but I don't really try on defense. And like he said that to me out loud, just admitted that, oh, no, I just don't care. And I I can't imagine not knowing everything about everyone you're playing with before putting real stakes. You know what, though? I would rather have the guy who admits he doesn't play defense than the guy who insists (laughs) on guarding the best player on the other team and it's just terrible and gets blown by every single time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like the devil you know or whatever that phrase is. You yeah. Know? Um, one one final basketball question before I ask you some more stuff about journalism, James. Uh, do you have, I don't know if you're like a big memorabilia guy, but do you have any particular items either at your place now or or with your parents that are meaningful to you? I'm actually not a huge memorabilia guy. I had an like ancient like Nick's practice t-shirt um, for Ooh. the better part of 10 years. That was pretty much always my game day attire and that's gone. Um, mm-hmm. No, I'm not. I actually, I actually just re-upped, uh, got a Randall jersey last year, got a Barrett shirt. Um, I mostly just have always been a kind of what I'm wearing today, just kind of like basic Nick's logo uh, stuff. I'm not, I was never a big trading card collector as a kid, but I think I have most of the 93, 94 team in a binder somewhere. Like I unnecessarily nice. have like a, was Greg Anthony like the backup point guard? Like I definitely yeah. have like mm-hmm. people that no one should care about from those Knicks teams somewhere in my parents' house. but Got the uh, Xavier McDaniel laying around somewhere? Oh, God. Oh, God. Throw it up. <laughs> but, um, right, this is not a visual medium. I threw up an X for the listeners at home because I'm a moron. Um, <laughs> oh, man. All right, back to back to journalism a bit. We so don't have I think, to. No, please, I, I want to. I mean, we listen, we have people talking about basketball a lot on this show, but it's not often that we have a Los Angeles Times journalist on. Well, I think people have this misconception of journalism as being this thing that often is like, you know, people sitting in cubicles or at their homes writing about something without actually being active in covering it. I, I think I don't know why that is, but like you are someone who specifically in following your career, like I remember when you were in Ferguson during the riots being like, I hope James is okay. Like, what is that like for you to be literally on the front lines covering a situation that is actively dangerous? Like, how do you know where you're supposed to be? Like, how do you how do you deal with that situation? I kind of just run and react to stuff. Um, and sometimes it doesn't always end well. I mean, when I was in Ferguson, three hours after I landed, four hours after I landed, because I got there the night that the decision came down not to charge the officer who killed Michael Brown, uh, two Missouri Highway Patrolmen pointed rifles at me because I'm just very used to being in chaotic situations. I cover a lot of protests and you hear screaming, you hear a boom, you hear loud noise and you run toward it. Um, so that was just my gut reaction. And I did not see that there were two cops in basically body armor between me and the thing that I heard. And they both spun around and drew at me. Wow. And I was like, oh, I'm going to die. This is going to suck. Um, I do think um, I have some you know, ethnic plot armor that might have helped in that situation, but, uh, you know, also threw the hands up right away. I mean, in general, it's, it's the best way to do it because there's definitely, there is armchair journalism. Like I'm not going to pretend that doesn't happen, especially with 
the Twitter sphere now, you know, I cover a lot of protests. Uh, about two weeks before we recorded this, I was covering uh, an anti-vaccine protest in downtown LA where two people got stabbed and a bunch of people got busted up in fights. And you do see a lot of reporting on it later, uh, especially among the pundit class on both sides of the political divide, Fox and CNN, where people are just babbling about this thing that you were at based on a 30 second Twitter video. And they're like, oh, it's clearly this side did X. And it's like, how the hell do you know that? You're in Atlanta. Shut up. It's probably Trey Young's fault. But uh, I'm going to keep bringing it back to him. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. It can be exhilarating. It can be dangerous. But it's, you know, we're like the eyes and ears of most of everybody else who's sitting at home. So I do think it's important to do. And it's why I tend to, to keep doing it. You know, I'm, I'm less street crime these days. My beat now is more courts in the DA's office. So I actually do find myself doing more armchair than I'd like or more. I'm just sitting in trials. I've been covering the Robert Durst trial lately. But yeah, when there's bedlam, uh, especially for whatever reason, protest chaos, like that's kind of become my like second role. Right. But I mean, you know, so you and I graduated college in 2009. And basically throughout the course of your career, we have transitioned from an era where there was like mostly accurate news to a time where there is just rampant misinformation. As a journalist, how frustrating is that to see people, you know, quote tweeting things that are actively not true when you are doing all of this work and your editors are doing all of this work to make sure that what you are putting out is accurate and people just don't give a shit sometimes. Oh, it's infuriating. I see I see friends, I see relatives sometimes sharing news about LA. Sometimes misappropriated versions of stories I've written. It's like, oh, the Gateway Pundit said, you know, the LA mayor built a jetpack suit and he stole Robert Bank or whatever. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what's, <laughs> you know, it, it, like it happens routinely with stuff I'm writing about. It's, it's maddening. I don't, I don't even, I'm like struggling to formulate a response to it only because it's, it's just so nauseating all the time to just see people taking information that clearly has no basis in reality is cited to nothing matches up with no other details from i just don't get how people for you know decades and decades i mean i guess it's the internet's fault but decades and decades you had these institutions that were trustworthy and you knew you, you can't put something on the la times website without going through you know multiple editors multiple copy editors multiple fact checks it just doesn't happen that's always been the rules for these institutions but now somehow because uh, you know it became popular i guess to criticize the the mainstream media or whatever we are subject to endless scrutiny but then like some random website pops up that you agree with and then that's taken as fact you know, I got relatives who think the Gateway Pundit is more trustworthy than the LA Times. And, you know, I'm going to throw them out off of the balcony one day. For people who are not aware, what is the Gateway Pundit? I don't know. It's like a like a epileptic fit that sometimes spits out words in a coherent order. Um, it's a it's a hyper conservative website that doesn't do anything accurate. They just mostly deal in rumor and gossip. Right. Um, well, and, and I was curious as well, like, and, and I don't know if this is something you, you don't like talking about. And if that's the case, that's totally fine. But like knowing that your dad is, or, or was in law enforcement, how challenging has that been for you reporting on things that often involve police brutality when you have a police officer in your family? Like, is that something that you guys don't talk about? Like where, where are you guys at with that? Oh, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Um, we talk about it sometimes. It actually leads to more fruitful conversation than it does argument. There's definitely, there's certain topics in certain situations that if, uh, especially if it relates to he's an NYPD veteran, if it relates to New York, that's when the arguments become stronger. Like, oh, the arguments happen, period. Like they don't when I'm writing about LA things, because frankly, he at least knows to defer. Usually, that I probably know the LAPD or the LA Sheriff's Department or whoever a little better. But, you know, when it's his home turf, he gets, he can get upset. Um, at the same time, though, it's beneficial because it also kind of helps me, you know, I do write a lot of stories critical of police, but it's not necessarily like I wake up in the morning looking to screw with cops either. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to develop relationships in law enforcement, relationships with prosecutors. And I've been, you know, going to barbecues around cops since I was eight, nine, 10. You know, he was mm -hmm. always close with his partner. So, you know, I kind of learned how to talk, how to act around them, kind of how to, you know, almost like kind of respectfully criticize sometimes, I guess, not in a story necessarily, but in, you know, in a conversation. It's definitely been it's been as helpful as much as it's been a hindrance uh throughout the career talking about basketball and then also criminal justice we've seen in the past couple of years with the WNBA and the nba more activism more involvement in protests you have WNBA players former players like maya moore taking seasons off to help people because you've been reporting on this for a while have you noticed any sort of difference any sort of improvement because these athletes are putting a shine on these things the bucks protesting during the bubble anything like that are those things helping are they making a difference it, it forces police officials police leaders to confront it on a 
more national scale on a more watched scale, you will sometimes see locally, and I saw this more in small departments in Jersey, but even sometimes in LA, if criticisms are only coming from the local activists, from the protesters that are routinely screaming at people at the police commission meeting every week or at a crime scene or at whatever, they tend to tune it out. And I think a lot of people do that just in general, whatever they're doing. I, I have regular critics on Twitter of my reporting that if it comes, becomes Boy Who Cried Wolf after a while, even if they have a valid point, because it's just like, oh, it's you again. Whereas I feel like if you're the Los Angeles police chief and, and LeBron, who's now, you know, employed down the street, is saying something that's about you, you have, you have to take it more head on. You can't just dismiss it. And I just think as a big NBA fan, it's been cool to watch the players kind of get more socially involved as we've seen other leagues, you know, fail at that certain uh, pigskin comes to mind. Uh, but yeah, I think it's definitely had an effect of nothing else that it just, it just raises the status of the issue. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think there's certainly a case to be made that the Atlanta dream helped swing the runoff election in Georgia. They were very involved in that. And I, I think that's a pretty cool thing. And even uh, if people like seem to gloss over it at a certain point, but Black Lives Matter emboldened on the court during the bubble and during the NBA finals last year, like that wasn't a small thing. No, not at all. I mean, I think you also just like you said, you hit, you hit it on the head with Atlanta. I think it just generally nationally probably helped to get out the vote issues. Um, I mean, it probably largely leaned left, but in general, I think it just, it just tapped into sports fans who might not necessarily otherwise be politically engaged. You know, a lot of times I tend to forget, and I don't mean this as an insult, but like how a lot of people just don't consume news or aren't really up on current events and they are way more focused on basketball on baseball on football on tennis on whatever they watch uh than anything else so yeah when it when it's you know no you're not watching the suns game tonight you're not watching the bucks game tonight Giannis has something to say or the bubble i would think like jamal murray i feel like was was probably the most vocal and you know watching him like break down in tears after one game you know Somebody in Colorado started to care about issues that didn't before, and it was probably a lot more than one somebody. So, yeah, I think really just, uh, you know, regardless of where you stand on these issues, I think just forcing engagement with the topic and making it a reality in people's lives is is important. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, can't, I have nothing to add to that. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about your novels, one of which has come out and one of which is is coming out, if I'm not mistaken. But before we kind of round out talking about that, like you've accomplished a lot as a journalist. Like, do you have any specific goals, specifically within journalism, that would be like cool things to check off the list? Are there like certain types of events you would want to cover? Are there things that you haven't had a chance to do that you want to do down the road? I mean, I at some point need to test if I can do things that aren't related to criminal justice. Um, I've actually never. I've been writing about police or prosecutors or courts. Oh my God, it's like 10, 11, 12 years now. God damn it, I became old by accident. I just, I just had my 34th birthday. So now I'm, now I'm dying, basically. Um, I am slightly older than you. So, you know, no sympathy yeah, for Yeah, but I also saw that video of you cutting to the basket and you made me look like one of my ankles was going to leave. So I, was, I, I don't know. You might be younger at heart. Um, I, you know, I've never, I don't, well, I don't have any aspiration of being a political reporter. Like, I, if I was ever, I have friends in the White House press corps, I would, I would leave probably. I don't think I could do that. But covering city government or getting more into financials, you know, there's other areas. You know, criminal justice is still sexy to some extent. Like it's nuanced and it's complicated. And I do it way more from a policy standpoint than a tabloid chasing murder standpoint that I did when I freelanced for the New York papers or even back when I first started in Newark. But I've never yet, like city hall, city politics, there's a whole other side, a whole other areas of, of journalism that I would just kind of be interested in challenging myself to go after. But uh, beyond that, like I don't really have a, a checklist. I've never really sought to be a national reporter, like wanted to be in like the, the CNN, New York Times sphere. I'm very much kind of like an own your block, like believe in like local journalism kind of person. I mean, I know I write for a national paper, but I strictly cover city and county issues for the most part, you know, unless like you said, I got sent to Ferguson um, every now and again when protests get really out of hand in San Francisco or Berkeley or in Portland, you know, there's a chance I get sent out. But by and large, like, I just want to make sure I know what's going on in my neighborhood kind of, and I want to make sure the people that live there do. Yeah, no, that's totally. So your, your debut novel came out uh, last March, which uh, did anything else happen in March of 2020? I can't remember if anything significant happened. Nothing. I had all of my launch events and nothing went crazy. And I definitely was not sitting in a bar as de Blasio closed the city. Like, <laughs> you know, it was uh, actually that week that it came out was the was I was in I was in New York doing launch events. And and yeah, the uh, Rudy Gobert trying to give everybody on the jazz COVID and shutting the NBA down was my second day of being a published author and de Blasio closing the city as I was having a launch event on the Upper West Side was the third day. Wow. Great first week. <laughs> so what was that experience like? I mean, I guess there's no way to really know this, but like how how did that affect you releasing your 
first novel. Obviously, the timing of that is is interesting, but like it seems from everything that I have read that it has been very successful. Am I am I wrong in having that perception? I mean, it got it got really good reviews, um, and it sold relatively well. And I did at least get to have the New York events. I do think probably you know still got close friends, even relatives that haven't read it yet, just because it was a lot. Because it's also you know the plot does revolve around uh, a, sh- a police shooting of a young black man in Newark um, and an investigation into that. So that book comes out in March, and then you have George Floyd happen in May. And I, I definitely have friends. I have friends that are criminal justice reporters. Like I can't, I can't do this right now. You know, it's too close to home, and I get that. Yeah, it's not escapism. No, 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 no. I mean, I also started playing The Last of Us during a pandemic. So you know, for those listening at home, <laughs> that is a uh, game about a viral outbreak ruining society. So yeah. Um, but I get, yeah, that people, people couldn't tell. So it affected it in that way, I guess, just people didn't want to just have another layer of that at that time. But, um, no, I mean, it, it got, it got good enough reviews that I have another one coming out next year. So, you know, persevered through it, but definitely, yeah, I think I, it's not in the top 1000 problems anybody dealt with last year, but definitely took a little bit of the shine off of like, Hey, this is my moment. Oh God, they're everything is terrible. Sure. Yeah. And also just from that perspective of like, you know, feeling guilty, self-promoting when the world was on fire. Um, but yeah, so the, the debut novel was line of sight. Um, all these ashes is coming out later this year. So talk a little bit about like the genesis of this. Obviously it seems very much related to your work in journalism, but like, when did these ideas kind of start formulating in your brain and what was the process of putting this together? Cause I mean, a lot of people have these ideas of like, yeah, I'm going to write a book. And then 99% of people just don't do that. So just the fact that you have done it, I find wildly impressive. Uh, it was a little bit of coming back in Ferguson, honestly. You know, being raised by a cop and, you know, when I first started out in the business, I was a little bit more deferential maybe to the police narrative and the police side of the equation than you should be. And that's something that Russell's character, you know, the, the main character is an ex-reporter, uh, kind of working as a PI in name only. Um, you know, he's kind of dealing with the fallout of that as a career move and just the fact that he's kind of beholden to law enforcement. Um, but what, yeah, when I came back from Ferguson, um, you know, some of the things that I saw officers do in the, in the, the chaos there that were very clearly objectively wrong, uh, didn't get out of my head. And it kind of made me think back to, you know, some of the activists I was close with in Newark that I had maybe not given enough credence to when I was younger and didn't know any better. And I just kind of started crafting a narrative around that. Um, I actually wrote the opening scene to it and did not, Russell did not exist yet. I did not know what the book was going to be. I didn't, you know, I published a lot of short stories up to that standpoint. So I just kind of spat that scene out uh, in the middle of the night, not long after I got back from Ferguson. I kind of just sat there for the better part of a year. I didn't really know what to do with it. Then I, you know, kind of figured out the Russell character, which is, you know, very clearly only lives two houses down from me, more or less, um, (laughs) mentally speaking. Then it kind of took off from there. But yeah, it was, it was definitely coming out here going to Ferguson, kind of almost reorienting as a reporter and, you know, the universe changing around us with the Black Lives Matter movement definitely, you know, kind of helped give birth to that, to that plot. Yeah. And now is the, is this, uh, the second work, is it, it's in the same universe, I assume, right? Yeah, it's a sequel. Um, Russell is still the main character. Spoiler, he doesn't die in the first one. (laughs) Um, it's somewhat dealing with the fallout of the first book. You wouldn't have to have read the first one to follow the second. Uh, you know, it's not Harry Potter, but, um, but yeah, it has to do, this one is more of a, a cold case, uh, looking at the idea of wrongful convictions, which is something I've been writing about a lot. It's loosely based off of a really horrific case I covered in Newark, um, involved a, a, number of teenagers disappearing and presumably being burned to death. Jeez. Um, so this, this is a, it is a fictional take on that case. I wanted to call more attention to that case because the person in real life who was arrested in that crime also was arrested under a, a somewhat quite like, you know, I, I have no independent knowledge whether the guy was innocent or guilty. He was ultimately acquitted at trial, but he was arrested on very minimal evidence. And the book kind of takes off on that idea. And it's kind of a hunt for the for the real killer kind of plot. For your third book, do you think you would maybe do an alternate reality one where Russell is replaced by Russell Westbrook and he's solving crimes? Because I would be first in line to read that. I don't think I could write a book with Russell Westbrook in it unless he's the villain. Ooh. Not a big, not a big Russ guy over You're here. You're not a big Ooh. Russ guy. What, what about Russ irks you? 
I, I him and Harden, I, I don't know. Maybe this is the old man side coming out. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't have a lot of love for the the total ball dominant guards. Um, Harden, I have the the stereotypical complaint, obviously, with the head fake fouls. Um, right. Russ is he shoots you into as many games as he shoots you out of. I mean, I'm not going to prognosticate for the Lakers here. Obviously, he has two gods in human form on the same team as him, so maybe it'll be less of a problem now. But yeah, not a big, not a big Russ guy. Um, I am working on a third book actually. It is not Russell. I'm giving Russell a little time off right now. I'm working on it's kind of I mean a big comic book nerd too not that it goes in the superhero direction but it's got some sci-fi going on I wanted to set something in LA I've been living out here seven years and outside of a short story I've barely touched California so yeah I'm messing around with with something outside of crime right now um because I probably should have some part of my life that doesn't tie into that <laughs> uh well James thank you very much for making the time I know you have a lot uh going on uh where can people find you where can people find your work uh anything you would like to plug uh on Twitter I'm at James Queely LAT and I share pretty much any and all stories uh fictional or real that I publish on there um I own my author website is jamesqueelywriter.com uh you want my phone number? Sure. Last for your social, we'll do the security code. Blood type. First concert you ever attended, childhood best friend, mother's middle name. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, de- definitely. If you're out there, give me the Twitter follow. Yeah, um, I'm always on there, but that's the easiest way to find me. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you again for uh, for hopping on with us. We will let you get back to the uh, the Robert Durst trial that will never end. And uh, we, we appreciate the time. I can't believe there's another one. Wild. Help me. <laughs> no, seriously. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Horse. Horse is hosted by Adam Amawala and Mike Schubert. Our editor is Misha Stanton. The social media is run by Mike Schubert. The music is by Bettina Kambamanes. The art is by Allison Wakeman. And the website is by Kelly Schubert. Thank you to our producer-level patrons, Polly Burge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwick, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Siobhan Ellsbury, Shubi Dubidu, Godzilla Got Busy, Steph Curry for three. Bang! He Sells Seashells, Laurent James, Matt Barger, NBA legend Robert Sacri, No Jazz, No Pizza, Eileen Gazesh, Avatar Kyoshi, Don't Go Chasing Taco Falls, Anna Borjali, Mitch Chrysler. Bang! Bang! Brown Men Can Jump, Jimmy Butler 4-2, Long-Suffering Timberwolves fan, Roast Beef Debris, Christ Paul, Cade the Conqueror, and Basketball is Life 2. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Horse Hoops and on Twitter at Horse underscore Hoops because... Horse Hoops is actually Rich Paul and Nerland's Noel sued him out of a Twitter account. Wow. I wonder if you'll yeah. be able to get that Twitter account back and give it to us. Come on, baby. No way to be sure. <laughs> Check out our website, horsehoops.com, for links to some of the stuff we talked about. Definitely links to some of James's work and uh, perhaps some fun Clay Thompson business. Yes, we love fun Clay Thompson business. It's the only type of business I ever want to be a part of. <laughs> if you want to support the show and get rewarded with incredible bonus content in order for doing so, whether that is bonus episodes, us turning three on three to five on five, stickers, jerseys, so much, you can go to patreon.com slash horsehoops. And we will close out this episode as we do every episode by putting our hands in the middle and saying something on the count of three. I think we should channel Clay Thompson and his mantra of dog, they pay me to shoot the ball on the count of three to wish him a good next season and the best of health. I think that's a great idea. All right. One, two, three. Dog, Dog, they they pay pay me to to shoot shoot the the ball. ball. (laughs) Gosh, it's great. I would love to play a video game where he says that after every single shot. That'd be great. That should have been in Space Jam. Would have been a better movie. Come on. Uh, Missed opportunity. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. 